whistleblower report exposing lies deceptions and all that has assaulted our way of life we must take back our freedom and live as god designed in a free america that honors our constitution and our creator our experts in medicine ministry law military environment and education empower us to grow together as a nation such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America with an explosive story based upon the Pfizer whistleblower case in Beaumont, Texas, where oral arguments were just done last week. And with us today is one of the attorneys on the legal team and Brooke Jackson herself, the courageous whistleblower who saw such injustice and such wrongdoing in Pfizer's clinical trials that she spoke up and actually was removed from her job for speaking up to expose the abuses and the wrongdoing and has been courageous in this fight to expose the massive fraud. In fact, Robert Barnes, the lead attorney with Warner Mendenhall, called this the biggest trial against big pharma in American history. And let's listen to, in a moment, to his shocking statement in a recent interview following the oral arguments in Beaumont, Texas. And let me say at the outset that as a practicing physician who has spent a career appropriately recommending vaccines for people, having gotten vaccines myself, I had very strong concerns in March and April and May of 2020 when Fauci first started talking about the fact that they were going to have a vaccine ready in the first year of this novel, supposedly novel coronavirus pandemic, when vaccines normally take, traditional vaccines normally take anywhere from two to seven years to properly develop and conduct proper clinical trials and safety studies. And gene therapy agents under the FDA regulations required five to 15 years. So the idea that a novel technology, which was a gene therapy under the FDA regulations at the time, could be developed in less than a year and we would have safety information to make it available to patients. I found that absolutely unbelievable just from my career in medicine and common sense. Now, as it's turned out, we know that there were, were a lot of fraudulent aspects that, was, that were hidden from all of us in the medical profession and the public that fortunately is beginning to come out. 
but I have seen the damage in my own patients. I am trying to treat them. I am trying to monitor them properly. And I am trying to see that we identify the risk ahead of time before devastating complications like strokes and heart attacks and cancers and other devastating problems. But I've also seen the impact on men and their testicles. And I've also seen the damage to women and their ovaries. And it is truly shocking. So I am grateful for the legal team that has carried this case forward. I am grateful to Brooke Jackson for courageously coming forward. But before we hear from them, let's hear just a few seconds from Robert Barnes and what he has said in a recent interview. interview. Pfizer's defense was not that these allegations are false. They challenge whether the allegations are true, but at this stage of the pleadings, they have to assume them to be true legally. Their argument was solely, even if all of the, uh, even if they created a dangerous, ineffective drug that they disguised as a vaccine that they said would be for the prevention of COVID-19 that didn't prevent COVID at all. In fact, in some cases, it appears the infection rate, it goes up with COVID, depending on how many booster shots that you've had, not only other dangers of the vaccine, that none of that matters. That as long as the Biden administration and the Justice Department and the FDA and the the Defense Department go along with this scam, that nobody can ever hold them accountable. Well, that was a pretty shocking statement. So, Warner, Robert Barnes is your colleague, and the two of you were there in person arguing this case. And, Brooke, you were there. So, tell us about it. And as part of the discussion, I want you to tell our listeners about your background, Brooke. But let's hear what Warner has to say about what it was like in court at that momentous occasion. Well, we were very pleased to have a hearing. Uh, It went on for three and a half hours this past week. And it's very, uh, it's not often that you get a hearing like this on a motion to dismiss. So I was happy to get the, you know, to have the judge's attention for that amount of time and to try to address these points. And I think the judge himself and and Brooke saw this, uh, he was looking at what's called the statement of work and and he was kind of cross-examining Pfizer and Pfizer's attorneys about this. And that's, this is where Robert Barnes statement comes from. They're saying, you know, uh, even if you accept everything that we say, that this is a dangerous product that's not safe and effective, that as long as the federal government accepts it and continues to pay for it, that's all okay. And I, I don't think that any of us wants to live in a world that something, a product this dangerous uh, is out there and we don't have legal recourse. But that's what Pfizer, that's the world Pfizer thinks that it's built for him, for itself. And it's up to this judge to punch through that and help to hold them accountable. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that came up, you know, that I was looking at today, just by the way, and I look at this document periodically, was the report, you know, that came out two months, you know, the two month adverse event report. 
And already within two months of injecting this product, they had 158,000 adverse events reported. So the signals were so clearly dangerous so early on. And for the FDA to ignore the data that Brooke brought forward, the data that's in the clinical trials, the data that emerged immediately after just 60 days, it's really astounding that, that we're proceeding with this and have gone as far as we've gone. And I'm very concerned about what that means for our population health going forward. Well, definitely I'm seeing it in medical practice because I see, I see the adverse events that don't cause death and I see the rising death rates. I mean, I had one patient last week tell me that in his immediate circle, there were seven people who either died or had devastating brain damage from strokes and rapidly progressing dementia. We've never had a traditional vaccine in my career that crossed the blood brain barrier. So, and we've certainly never had one that crossed the placental barrier. So the technology that was engineered with the lipid nanoparticles to cross into these highly protected areas, the brain and the across the placental barrier to affect the developing baby, which is just staggering damage. So yeah, people that, are very people are very concerned, Dr. Vleet. And in fact, Brooks Hearing attracted a number of people from around Texas. And we heard the same stories from folks who came to see the argument. They are so upset at losing their friends and acquaintances to the shot. And they really do connect it. I, I the gentleman, uh, Brooke, you know, he came, he drove down to see us. And I think he said six or seven of his acquaintances had passed in the last year. And he's about, he was about my age, uh, late fifties, early sixties. And, and he understands that something is different. Something has happened. And I think that's also something that can influence these court decisions. This judge cannot be completely insulated from what's happening uh, with people. Well, the judge himself surely knows people who've gotten the shot and had a complication, adverse event, stroke, or death. I mean, you, I don't know of a single patient in my practice or a single friend who doesn't know someone who has died or been injured by these shots. Friend just commented last Sunday, oh my heavens, people at church, and this is, the, it's an older congregation, people at church are dying like flies all of a sudden. Well, we know why. And to add to what you're saying and, and the reason it's so important, what Brooks has, Brooke has had the courage to do, Edward Dowd, I was so stunned by an interview that I heard that he did early, early after the shots rolled out. It was early 2022 in this, inter this first interview I heard of his and he said, I've been studying the actuarial data and we have had a Vietnam War death rate in the first nine months after the COVID shot rollout. And he said, 18 to 44 year olds were the age group that died primarily in the 10 years of the Vietnam War. And in 10 years of Vietnam, we lost 58,000 Americans. I am old enough to remember that. In nine months, 
after the COVID shots rolled out, 68,000 young Americans, healthy working age, 18 to 44, died. A Vietnam War in nine months. That was shocking. And the fact that he equated the two really put it in perspective. So, Brooke? Yeah, I'll tell you, Dr. Lee. Uh, sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, the first time that I, I, um, I was doing an interview actually with, with a, a Canadian podcaster and right in the middle of the interview, and I'm on there with Paul Thacker, who was the investigative journalist um, that, that helped bring um, that BMJ article forward. But him and I are on this podcast and I said the word fraud. And this was back in November of 2020. But I said the word fraud and the interview was stopped. And we go off of a recording and she said, Brooke, you just can't say that. And I said, why? why? It was fraud. What I witnessed, what I saw was fraud. There's no other way to put it. And she said, I'm j- just trust me. You don't want to say that. This is for your own protection. And I just thought, okay, well, this is your show. So um, I guess I'll, I'll find another word to describe what I saw. And anyway, the interview went on and, and I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. But days later, I saw Ed Dowd for the first time and, and he was on, uh, I believe Steve Bannon and he said the word fraud and it just rolled off of his tongue so easily and matter of fact, and, and just went about his conversation with, with Mr. Bannon. And I thought, well, darn it, if he can say it, I should have been able to say it. So I immediately reached out to, to him through LinkedIn. And I, I, I think I had one other email address that I was able to find online. Cause I'd never heard of that doubt before. Again, this was in November of 2020, excuse me, November of 21. So I reached out to him and, and we, we've been friends. Um, we've been friends since. So anyway, that just reminded me of that, that little story, but um, again, thank you for, for having me and Warner on. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and share my story. I am really honored to finally get to have you on and talk with you. And I really have admired your courage and and the fire in your spirit to fight for the truth and and to weather the storms that have hit you with the way that you've been demonized and attacked. And I'm sure have had a lot of difficult times since you came out swinging to help save lives and explore. Well, that fire is anger and sadness because, you know, I, I've been in the clinical industry, clinical trial industry, research industry for, for almost my whole career. And what I saw during that time, you know, I've worked at clinical research organizations, spent half of my, half of my, you know, latter, latter time in a director level type position. I've worked in medical devices and therapeutics. I worked on large scale uh, um, vaccine trials. My, my specialty is in GI and transplant hepatology. And, you know, I was, I was in my space. I was doing what I, what I've loved to do and going into Ventavia, 
you know, I, I knew that they were running Pfizer's phase three clinical trial for the COVID vaccine and having, um, you know, worked previously, the job that I had before, I was a director of operations for a very similar company. We were working on the early stage remdesivir trials and I was working on the PCR test validating validating those systems. So I was familiar with COVID. I, anywhere there was a hotspot, I was going and I really just got burned out on, on the travel. So I started looking for something closer to uh, my home so I didn't have to travel as frequently and came across Ventavia Research Group looking to hire a regional director to help them manage this clinical trial. And Dr. Vliet, when I stepped in the door from day one, I really, I, I really recognized I was I was in for a challenge, but I was I accepted it and you know thought that I could use my 20 years of experience to help this company. Uh, you know, I, I've spent my whole career helping to get safe and effective products to market. Um, I'm not an anti-vaxxer as, as Pfizer's claimed, you know, like you kind of introduced yourself, you know, I, I, I typically, you know, was the one that got her flu shot every year because I was in the hospital system. We were kind of required to do that with my transplant patients. It was just something that, you know, that I did. Um, didn't, didn't think twice about it. I trusted the regulatory authorities. I knew that my part in data collection and um, the clinical trial part, I, I couldn't manage it all. So once it left my, my sites that it went to um, the FDA and they did their job. And then, you know, if, if they found that it was safe and effective, it, it would move on in, into the general population. But I feel like my, my whole, really my, my whole career has been just um, a lie. I, I will never ever work in the pharmaceutical industry again. Um, they've they've robbed that um, from me. I think they have lost the trust mm -hmm. of a large percentage of Americans and perhaps the world mm -hmm. with the way that this has been rolled out, the lies and the deception that have come to light. I've seen other times in my career, certainly we had fraud in the Vioxx trials. We had fraud in the clinical trials for Prozac. And there, there are others that over my career, pharmaceutical companies were fined for fraudulent clinical trials. But nothing on the scale of this and nothing that has involved such blatant collusion by the FDA to hide the fraud. That's, I mean, the fact that the FDA was trying to prevent the Pfizer clinical trial data from coming out for 75 years is, is stunning. That's, a, that's in itself, in my opinion, that's an admission of guilt. If you want to hide it for 75 years, you must have something to hide. I mean, common mm. sense would say that. Warner, what are your thoughts about as an attorney? And we'll talk more about all this in the second half. But in in light of what you've seen with what what Brooke has brought to light as a whistleblower, what are some of your thoughts from the legal standpoint? Well, it's interesting. Prior to the pandemic, back in 2019, the Department of Justice itself 
had an initiative to look at clinical trial problems. And I, I find it fascinating that they had public statements about this, and we put this in our briefing, but the Justice Department knows that the clinical trials have really uh, deteriorated in terms of their quality. And I think part of that is because the system we have set up it's, is different than it used to be. Pfizer is no longer doing internal clinical trials. They're subcontracting these out. And I think that gives them sort of a, a little bit of deniability. Uh, so this, this Ventavia, for example, is running the trial. Uh, Pfizer says, well, we depend on Ventavia to do the work properly for us. And Ventavia simply isn't doing it. And I think Pfizer knows that because it's very hard and it's very expensive to do these trials properly. And as you pointed out, generally, they take a long time. So in this rushed process, we really did sacrifice patient safety. We sacrificed clinical trial participant safety. Uh, and, and so this whole system that we've set up at this point, I think, has deteriorated to where we really cannot trust these clinical trial contractors that we're using. I think the other thing that I want to point out is how we got into this, you know, fast development. And it came through a military contract. And I think people forget that often, or maybe they don't know that in the first place. But we should not be contracting for our military with our military to, to purchase these items. This should this should be a health-related uh, health-related endeavor, not a military endeavor. And this contract, in fact, says that it's for military readiness. Well, what does that have to do with the 200 million or so people then who've had this shot? I don't think it has anything to do with it. So that's really a a bad structure uh, to develop safe drugs, uh, vaccines, or any other medical product. Uh, and in fact, I want to go back to that military contract. It's actually for a prototype. They actually call it a prototype. And you and I know what a prototype is. Yes. It's something somebody cobbles together to see, to flesh out an idea. It's not something that you inject on a mass basis into the mass market, into mass healthcare. Uh, that's not how a prototype should be used. It's something to test and experiment with to find out where the problems might be. So clearly, it's just such a muddle. I, we've really muddled the language. And, I, and I'll go back even to the fact of calling this really a vaccine. You know, we've muddled the language. And, and um, even calling these, these were not clinical trials in the traditional sense of any clinical trial. This isn't a, you know, this is not, um, even the approval process was uh, short-circuited apparently. Um, and the data was, was apparently, some of it at least, was hidden from the FDA. And, and on top of all of that, we do have corruption. We have what's called regulatory capture where these companies, Pfizer, Moderna, other big pharma companies have really captured our regulators. And we all see that in the in this revolving door of people working in the government, then working for Pfizer, then maybe even going back to the government as this door constantly revolves to build corporate power and control. So all these things have got to be completely leveled 
And then we need to rebuild them with good doctors like you on board guiding us in terms of what we need to, you know, what we need to be looking at to have have truly uh, safety in our food uh, and drugs. Absolutely. And and I, I want to make a comment about it was a military contract. I want the listeners to understand that this was a Department of Defense contract. Our military service members were just as much victims of this vast experiment and the prototype as the civilians were because they were human guinea pigs as well. In fact, Truth Health Foundation has been doing a lot of work to help the vax-injured military service members and provide legal defense grants for their the trampling of their constitutional rights And they are more vulnerable than we are because they have no recourse to leave and get another job. They can't just walk out of the military. So I really, and and my thought has been, if we don't defend our military, who's going to defend the rest of us? But this was never, it was never about military readiness because they knew the damage and the toxicity of the spike protein 15 to 20 years before it was rolled out. And our military has been extremely damaged in terms of their physical health. And the the military readiness has actually been extremely damaged by the COVID shots. And we are hearing that from many military whistleblowers and the DMED database supports that. So all the way around, it was a massive deception. And the FDA was not doing its job due to the regulatory capture you talked about. And then Sasha Latipova and Hedley Reese, who have spent their entire career in big pharma, manufacturing, quality control, clinical trials, the whole gamut of proper conducting of the development and production and distribution of safe and effective medications and vaccines. And they have exposed the complete lack of any adherence to good manufacturing practices. So all the way around, the public has no idea what's in those shots. And what just came out in our military advisory council today is the fact that one of our service members is aware of a situation on a military base, which I can't name, but where the pharmacist failed to dilute the vaccines and seven service members were given dramatically high. They got seven doses at once. It was not diluted. Mm. And and they don't even know who they are. So my concern is I don't want Americans to think that our military has turned against them. The military has been damaged beyond our comprehension. And they are just as much a victim of the Department of Defense, bad policies and deception. And that's... You're right. That's such an important point. I mean, what we we have the soldiers, the sailors, the air airmen, all affected by this, and and we have heard from so many 
uh, yes. very patriotic military people. I mean, you know, and, and we can go up the chain of command to an extent, uh, but where this is coming from is the Pentagon. Yes. COD. You know, we're talking about the administrators and the bureaucrats who have mandated this deadly shot on our military, and they have taken out a huge number of people. I mean, we have a, a military force, I think, it, including reserves and everything, I think we're at about 2.5 million. And we've taken out a huge percentage of that force. I think at least 10% left just due to the mandates. And I, I don't know that everybody understands this, but when you take out 10% of a, of a fighting force, you have really disabled that force is what you've done. You can't afford to you to lose that many people. So it well, is especially that many experienced trained people. I mean, there's, there are years. Say, and, 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 and critical thinkers who, who were yeah. trying to protect their fellow military, uh, their fellow soldiers, sailors, and air, air uh, personnel. So, you know, these are, that's, that's the other thing, Dr. Pleat, you're exactly right. These are some of our best and brightest that have been ejected from our national defense forces. Exactly right. And they are the ones who defend all of us. We'll be right back after the break and hear more from Attorney Warner Mendenhall and whistleblower Brooke Jackson. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report legal segment. And listen, every day, Monday through Friday, right here on America Out Loud Talk Radio, 12 noon and 12 midnight Eastern time. And check out our website, www.truthforhealth.org for more information on all of these critical topics and to report your citizen's vaccine injury report and download our free vaccine injury treatment guide if you've had complications from the COVID shot or for that matter, other vaccines. We'll be right back. America out loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. Well, we know you because we are you. AmericaOutloud.com. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. 
HealthyCell.com, code out loud. The family of Juliana Parker would sincerely like to thank the Truth for Health Foundation. Without their help and support, we never could have gotten our mother out of the hospital and into our home so that we could be with her for the last week of her life. They gave us the strength, the courage, the knowledge, the list of things that we needed to do in order to prepare for that. And they were there at a critical moment when it came to moving her out. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report. And this is Dr. Lee for America with attorney Warner Mendenhall and whistleblower Brooke Jackson talking about the one of the biggest cases against big pharma in U.S. history, the Pfizer whistleblower case in Beaumont, Texas. Oral arguments just took place last week, and we are waiting for the outcome of the judge's ruling on that motion to dismiss. And hopefully the judge will do the right thing. And we all need to be praying that he will be guided in God's will to bring truth to the world and especially the American people who have been so defrauded and deceived by our own Department of Defense and FDA, CDC, NIH, and the bureaucrats who have lied to us about this COVID shot. So Warner, let's pick up where you and Brooke were talking about the oral arguments and what, what is your perspective on how that went? Well, I, like I said, I was impressed that the judge really read through the documents. Uh, there's a document in particular that he read from called a statement of work. And he seemed to have analyzed that statement of work and, and was really digging in uh, with the Pfizer attorney about what the Pfizer attorney felt about what their obligations were under this contract. And I think the judge was appalled at some of the answers that he got, that they didn't feel any obligation at all to have a safe, effective um, vaccine. And I, so I, I liked that uh, line of questioning. Um, Brooke, what were your observations of the, of the judge there? Well, I was just nervous. <laughs> um, and, and, I thought that we were going to go in and possibly come out with, you know, um, an order for discovery. And the first thing that he said right away was that he was not going to be ruling from, from the bench that he would be issuing his, you know, his, um, determination, um, in a written way, but it, it felt good to be there. You know, I, I, have been waiting since September of 2020 for some sort of action. And I have just been met with a bunch of inaction on every level from, you know, Pfizer to the FDA to the DOJ and, you know, even, even into the court, you know? Um, so I, I was, I was happy to be there and um, thankful that Robert and Warner and Lexus were there to argue on, on behalf of myself and, and the people of the United States who was, you know, they're, they're the reason that, that I filed this lawsuit. I, I knew that this, this product was going to be, you know, distributed across the globe. And I, I, um, I saw what happened in the clinical trials and, you know, that, that really correlates to, to what we're seeing 
in the day-to-day, you know, the, the adverse reactions. We saw those in the clinical trial. And Brooke, they had tell us panel. more what you saw in mm-hmm. the clinical trial that alarmed you so rapidly, because I understand from Warner that you were you were not there, but more than a, a few days when you saw things that were quite alarming and you spoke out. Tell our listeners about your experience compared to past experiences and what you saw. I think people need to know. Sure. Well, I can tell you right away that this clinical trial was unlike any that I'd ever been a part of. I'd never seen a clinical trial run in, in this way. And there was a, a, a direct push from Pfizer, even with their knowledge of how backed up on reporting data that we were, they were aware of problems that we were that we were facing and they just kept incentivizing this this company to enroll more and more they were targeting uh, uh, patients of minority descent they were targeting our healthcare workers and our first responders mainly because they fit into that high risk category but like 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 Warner said I was only there I only made it 18 days uh, I was fired on the 25th of September and the, the reason that they gave for my termination was that I was not a good fit, which is, is absolutely correct. I was not a good fit. I refused to be a part of their cover-up. And, um, you know, I, I really saw the problems the moment that I stepped into the clinic. Um, it being my first day, I kind of just wanted to get introduced to my staff and kind of um, shadow one of the... Um, like medical assistants, we call them research coordinators, just to get a a feel for how the clinic flowed. And really, I'd had an opportunity before I actually even started to go through our standard operating procedures. So I wanted to make sure that as a director that my my staff were following our own practice, um, written policy rather. And so I did that when when I uh, uh, shadowed this coordinator into a patient exam room and listen to her give informed consent. It was not thorough and it was not complete and it wasn't an informed consent. Um, you know, and I, I always say this, that, you know, informed consent is really a process and we should do that throughout the entire clinical trial um, patients participation in the trial from day one through whatever that um, end, end is. And it's not just a moment in time when you, sign a piece of paper. And that was really what I saw. You know, they had the, um, it's like 30 pages of informed consent and they had the, the tab, a tab placed on the informed consent where the patient was to sign. So she quickly went over, whenever the payment that we were going to give the patient for their time and travel, a little bit about, you know, um, <coughs> pardon me, their visit schedule, et cetera. And then here, um, here's where you sign a date. And so I had to interrupt that and and really just, I mean, informed, the informed consent, when I took over, it took me about an hour to go through that with the patient. I mean, it's, you know, (laughs) it's a lot of information. These patients needed to know what their risks were in participating. Was there any benefit to you participating? What are your obligations as a patient when you're signing up to do a clinical trial? Um, What happens if you get sick? What happens if you, 
you know, are hospitalized. None of that was gone over. So that was really the first thing that I saw. Um, and then just from there, it just was, it just snowballed, you know, making up data, fabricating data, falsifying data, mixing up blood specimens, <coughs> pardon me, unblinding patients. Wow. That was huge. Enrolling uh, friends and family members into the study, not monitoring the product's temperature storage. That was another huge thing that not just happened at, at one of my sites, but at both of them, they were not monitoring the temperature. And if you remember back in, in early 2020, mm -hmm. these had to be stored at ultra cool temperatures. I do remember that. And wasn't there also information that came to light later that the they were supposed to have been prepared properly ahead of time, but then they began to deliver unfinished product to vaccination centers that were not set up to properly mix in, in proper conditions at proper temperatures to mix and dilute them properly. Mm -hmm. That was something else that I found during the clinical trial that, that my staff were over and in some cases under diluting the product because they were so inex inexperienced. They were working way beyond their scope. They were, you know, enrolling patients, um, women of childbearing potential without verifying what methods of birth control they or their partner were using. Um, you know, just, I, I mean, the list, I, I, again, I've never seen anything like it before. And as I'm bringing up every morning, we had a, a director meeting and these were topics of discussion every single day. And Ventavia's owners just kept telling me, well, we're working on getting additional staff in here. We're going to look at hiring some registered nurses because that was another issue. We had nobody on site who could administer emergency medications in the event of a reaction. We didn't even have oh. epinephrine in our crash cart. The Benadryl, when I'm taking inventory and going through this crash cart, was expired. No bicarb. I mean, we just had problem after problem. It took me an hour and a half just to find the crash cart, first of all. Um, that should be readily available and in, in the area where patients were being seen. But that was also a problem because we had a little um, clinic. It was five exam rooms. We were pushing 40, 50, 60 patients a day. And so patients were scattered uh, just throughout this professional oh building, not just the clinic, but with, within the building itself. This is far, far worse than I knew, certainly, I mean, this is just staggering not to have a readily available crash cart when you are administering something that has a high rate of potential anaphylactic reactions. Mm -hmm. I mean, polyethylene glycol or PEG as a component of these shots is something that we have data that shows about 70% of people have antibodies to PEG and are potentially at risk of an allergic reaction. And to not have in-date Benadryl or epinephrine or Bicob or any of the emergency management equipment and medications, I, I find that just beyond I mean, comprehension. It was staggering. It was staggering. And, 
you know, the, the principal investigator, the main study doctor over the, the clinical trial, I, I met him twice in the 18 days that I was there. Um, so, so that when I'm going through the data and the paperwork, I'm thinking, you know, I've only met him. I've been here now this long. I've only met him twice. So who is assessing these patients eligibility? Who, who is doing the physical exams? Because he was never there. So then you go back and you start going through the documentation and you can, because I'm a, a trained and certified clinical trial auditor, my eye goes straight for some of these, some of these things. And I could tell that he had, he had backdated or, you know, um, signed one page, but didn't sign the other, maybe a, a nurse or excuse me, a physician from another clinic would come downstairs and do the physical assessment. And then it was just, it was just wild, wild. And the last day that I was there, I was called into a meeting and I could really tell that kind of the, you know, their, their attitude towards me had changed, you know, um, here, here I'm, I'm the new girl coming in and, and telling them all of these things that were going wrong. But I, I reminded them, this is why you hired me. I have experience at this level. I can tell you what, what you're doing wrong, what regulations you're not following. But we, we could have changed this in so many, so many different ways. We could have corrected it. Pfizer could have done what they needed to and excluded the data from being, you know, submitted to FDA for review. They refused to do that. You know, I just, at times, the enormity of the assault on people in this whole disaster is, is really overwhelming. You, you ask earlier, how did I do it? Well, it, it gets harder and harder the more the reality comes to light of the massive known damage and the fact that they willfully continued it, knowing what they were doing wrong. That's really hard to wrap your mind around. And I sincerely hope that God will allow us to see justice in this world for these wrongdoers. And they will be held accountable in this world. I know they will be accountable in the next world. But for all of the people who have lost loved ones and who've been damaged, I very much join you and Warner in fighting for justice in this world. Thank you. <clears throat> it, yeah. is, it, is, it is tough. Go ahead, Warner. I'm sorry. No, I, I was just going to talk a, a little bit um, about why this is so important and why her case is so important. If we can take apart what happened in these clinical trials, uh, this is over. Uh, and, and let me explain, let me run through some numbers a little bit with you. Um, in the clinical trial, I'm going to round these a little bit. Uh, in the clinical trial, there were 44,000 participants. That boiled down, though, in terms of the actual submitted data to just 170. So they started with 44,000 people, and the data that they submitted, the people they used to submit data on, it was only 170. 
And what we see in there is that they really gamed at this. In the vaccine arm, they excluded about five times as many as they excluded in the placebo arm. And normally in a clinical trial, and you, Brooke, correct me if I mess up here, but it should be about even. The same amount of exclusions would be expected from the control arm versus the, the test arm. Uh, and that wasn't the case here. So what happens, even a small site uh, like the Ventavia sites, even in, in under Ventavia, if you knock out some of those people, you then fall below statistical significance. That means there's not enough data for the FDA to even make a decision. They cannot make a decision. And Brooks site alone, I, I believe you had four, was it four of the 170 from the uh, Ventavia sites? Is that right, Brooke? Right, just, just so we're clear, you know, the, the 170 that Warner is, is mentioning is the, the data that was used to support the emergency use authorization that was granted on the 11th of December of 2020. That was based on 170 patients in the trial that were vaccinated, eight in the vaccine arm, 162 in the placebo arm. That gives you the 95% effective. 170 people equals 95% effective. Um, and yes, yeah, so when we are able to, you know, thank goodness for Aaron Seary's, um, you know, lawsuit against, um, against the FDA for the release of these documents, we're finally able to go through those and comb through those documents used, you know, um, to support their full licensure eventually. <clears throat> but the 170, it's huge. You know, when you look at <clears throat> the patients that were actually the 170 and the sites that they came from, yes, some were from my site for, um, there were 40 from another site where there's reported clinical trial fraud. So there's 44 of the 170 patients right off the bat, just for alleged clinical trial fraud. And then there's another almost dozen from, <clears throat> from the 170 who didn't qualify to be in that analysis based on Pfizer's own protocol and their own clinical review data. So, you know, that that's why I, I just, I'm praying so prayerful for discovery. I mean, can you imagine what, what would happen if we open up discovery and are able to speak to these investigators and potentially the clinical trial patients, you know, and then then on up the, the you know, Fauci and, and whoever else they wanted to pose, but, for me, I want to talk to the patients. I want to know what happened to them. I want to speak to the investigators. Um, and I, I would love to know where my colleagues are. I know that there are other people out there that, you know, work in my industry and had worked on these clinical trials and saw what I did. Yeah, and Brooke has been very, very good. Her public appearances and the opportunity that you've given her tonight, Dr. Vleet, as well, uh, it's really been important for Brooke to be out there because her courage is leading to other people finding their courage and, yes. and have contacted her from all over the world. And in fact, uh, we are going to meet some of those whistleblowers. We do have a little conference coming up the end of March. I'm going to plug this a little bit if it's okay, Dr. Vleet. Sure. No, it's get, important. 
we are getting the whistleblowers together and, and the lawyers together and some of the vaccine injured together uh, in Atlanta, um, March 25th and 26th, the last weekend of March. And um, uh, I'm going to mention another organization, if that's okay, vaccsafety.org. I already did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, I think that's important. Steve okay. Kirsch's group is doing critically important work. Yeah. And, and I want to, I do want to say that Dr. Vleet has, uh, you know, if you guys out there who are listening, haven't seen the interviews we've done, Dr. Vleet was really a pioneer in this. And, and we did some interviews with a bunch of attorneys, in a bunch of areas. Uh, so it's been important. And that is out there for anyone to watch at, at, at Truth for Health. Uh, but we're going to have an in-person conference, uh, vaccsafety.org, V-A-C-S-A-F-E-T-E-Y. I think I got that right. Vaccsafety.org uh, in Atlanta, the 25th and 26th. Please, if you are curious about these types of actions, please come. Uh, we're, it's going to be a very interesting uh, seminar. And, and Brooke will be there. Uh, along with other whistleblowers. So I just, it's so important to get out there. It's so important for people to find their courage. Uh, we've got to save our country. We've got to save our families. Um, and we got to save future generations. It's up to us. It, it absolutely is. And and I, I truly believe that we've we've all been, those of us that have come together in this fight have been prepared over our careers for just such a time as this, that this is probably, no, not probably, this is the most important fight of my entire lifetime and a, certainly my career in medicine. I've been involved in a lot of other fights along the way, going back to standing against insurance intrusion into the doctor-patient relationship in 1986 when I was calling out my fellow physicians and saying, you're selling your soul to the devil when you sign these contracts because you can't answer to two masters. And that has seen over my career, the destruction of the doctor-patient relationship. And then the, the whole war against hormones for women in the early 2000s, same debacle, same NIH money, power, greed, costing women their lives deceiving them about the truth, and then trying to stop the government intrusion and medical care with Obamacare. And now I have to say, this is the most critical fight of all, because literally the survival of humanity is at stake. We are seeing dramatic drop in live birth rates across Europe, varying from, I mean, I just did an interview with experts from two different European countries and 10 to 20% drop in live birth rate in many of the Western European highly vaccinated countries. And then Dr. Yeadon made the point that we're seeing the same outcomes here in the US. Dr. Lindsay talked about the fact that the COVID shots, the mRNA damage are being incorporated into men's sperm that means they're transmitting the genetic alterations to their children, to unborn children that are being conceived in vaccinated people with damage to the ova in the ovaries and damage to sperm. 
are being affected. So this is going to be an intergenerational problem and it is already costing dramatic decline in fertility. We can speculate on the reasons for that in another show, but clearly it's all part of the agenda that has been unleashed on humanity. And I'm just grateful, Brooke and Warner, that the two of you are taking this fight directly to the belly of the beast of Pfizer. And I pray that the judge will be ruling for it to proceed. Your closing comments in just the last minute or so. Brooke, call to action to other whistleblowers. Oh, a call to action. Well, I, I feel like when I, you know, when I came out against, um, against Pfizer and, and blew the whistle, you know, remember when it was cool, if you saw something to say something, you know, it was easy for me in, in 2020, early 2020 to, to do that. I still feel um, like it's easy to do now um, if you have integrity and if you care about humanity. Um, I've had the best support in, um, in this last three years from my attorneys to the doctors that I've met, the patients that I've met, there's, there's nothing that, that I can say that I'm afraid of. And maybe that's just because, um, of my faith and, and how I was raised, yeah. but <clears throat> you know, nothing negative, you know, it, it took me a while to find another job. And now I'm in a position where, you know, I'm, I'm not currently working, um, you know, for a paycheck, but I, I am working on things every day to help the injured, to, you know, just bring awareness to how these clinical trials were run and really hold these criminals responsible for what they've done and what they're doing to our future. So I, if there is Thank you. somebody out there that has something that they want to bring forward, I just encourage them to, to find somebody, find an attorney that you trust. I'm, I'm, always available to, to talk if they need to do that. Um, but it, it feels good to do good. So it does. Way. And just thank you so much for all you're doing. Warner, Definitely. my privilege and honor to work with both of you and any other whistleblowers out there come forward. We will tell your story right here on the whistleblower report. Join us every day, Monday through Friday here on the Whistleblower Report, 12 noon and 12 midnight Eastern time, and go to our website, truthforhealth.org, sign up for our alerts, and join our crusade. Hold your hand up, get your voice loud, speak out, take action in your community, and let's fight to preserve America as one nation under God with liberty and justice and truth for all.